have a mountain to climb 
don't have to swim to the ocean. Lord, because you're in our presence. Lord, just all we have to do is seek you out, Lord. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the heart that you had for us, Lord. The heart that would go to the cross and die for our sins. We're so blessed. We have we have a, just a lot of emotion in, in our hearts when it comes to worshiping you, Lord. But it's more than just emotion, Lord. It's more than trusting in your word. It is trusting that you're going to do what you said you're going to do. And Lord, that you will be with us throughout all eternity. So we love you, Lord. We ask that you bless this evening. Bless the worship. Bless the reading of the word. Bless the preaching. Bless the hearing. Bring your strength and your spirit upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, Richard. <laughs> Don't you just love that last song we sang? He would do anything for us, and he did everything for us. Just Jesus did it just to be with us. You know, I was talking to um, a guy here yesterday that came in to do some work in the building, and you know, I asked him a question. I, I said, "Are you? Have you considered your eternity? Have you thought about it?" And he said, "Well, yeah, I thought I've thought about it." I said, "Well, what did you think about it?" He said, "Well, I." I'm not really sure. I said, are you a spiritual person? And he told me he was raised in a particular denomination and he was wounded somehow. He didn't really say how. So he said, I don't, I don't go anymore. And I said, well, I was part of a religious system too. And God drew me out because you know, Jesus is very much against dead religion. He wants a relationship. He, he doesn't inter he's not interested in ritual. He's not interested in trappings and religious things. He's interested in you, I said to him. And I said, Jesus went as far as the cross and Calvary to die for you and to lay his life down so that you can be forgiven of your sin and you can believe in him by faith and realize that because he's done what he's did, he's done what he's done, then you, therefore, can spend a whole eternity with him in heaven. And he said, I got to go. I said, okay, that's fine. Doors are always open here. He ran out to his truck, and I followed after him. I gave him a track. I said, just read this, please. And he said he would. His name's Colin. Pray for Colin. And Father, we, uh, we come to you tonight, and we lift Colin up to you, and many others that we know that, that don't know you. They aren't necessarily interested in 
in a relationship or being conformed into the image of Jesus for millions of reasons, and there's only one reason to come to you, and that is because it's good and because you love us. So I do come to you and ask that you would have your way in him and in others as well that we know and love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 I'm uh, just moving this week from First uh, Kings and jumping into Deuteronomy chapter 4. So if you open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy 4, we're going to be studying verses 15 through 31. And tonight's message is entitled, A Warning with a Promise. And God, um, he, he always provides for us a warning. And in the case with Israel, he warned them, we're going to see this in this chapter, a warning against idolatry. And it can be a warning for any one of us, because we can establish idols in our lives quite quickly and quite easily. And, you know, as I consider and as you consider and think of the world around you, the world is trying to squeeze you into a mold, right? And it's not to try to squeeze you into the image of Jesus Christ, but to stir you and squeeze you into the image that the world wants you to present. But that's not what Jesus wants. So he gave them a warning. We're going to see they disobeyed, and God is just. And he told them there would be consequences to that, and there were. But you know, God was always there with open arms for his people. His arms are open wide for his people, Israel. We need to pray for Israel. We're called to in the scriptures. So let's pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for God's people. And Lord, we lift them up to you now. In obedience to your word, Father, we pray that you would just direct their hearts. Use the things they're dealing with right now to bring them to the place of relationship with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Another thing before we get into the scriptures, what do you think about our new speaker of the house? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely pro-life. A man that is, in his, uh, his speech today, a brief one, but a powerful one. He, he spoke scripture. He spoke the, the uh, book of Romans chapter 5, a portion of that. He talked about hope. And at the trials and tribulations that we go through now, build character, as Romans 5 tells us, and character builds us into a place of hope and trusting in the Lord. So, pray for speaker, Michael Johnson. Deuteronomy 4, verse 15. It says, Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves. Now, this is the second time in this chapter that the word heed, take heed, is used. The first time is in verse 9. I'm just going to read that to you. If your Bible's open, you can read along with me. It says, Only take heed to thyself, and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, unless they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. But teach them to thy sons and to thy sons' sons. God says, Take heed. The first, take heed to the word of God, to, to learn it, to understand it, and keep it alive. And the second, take heed, is 
not just to take heed, but take good heed. Not that the other one was bad heed, but it's all good. But here he uses the word, he adds the word good, which means very diligently and intensely. What's God referring to here in a second, take heed to yourselves? Well, the second part of verse 15 tells us, through verse 19, for you saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged fowl that flieth in the air, the likeness of anything that creepeth on the ground, the likeness of any fish that's in the waters beneath the sea, unless thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. Well, God reminds them. He reminds the people. He said, when Moses went up to the top of Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, he said, you saw no similitude or no, no likeness. Moses could not see what God looked like. He saw, heard God's voice, excuse me, in the midst of fire. He just heard the voice of God speaking. Well, why just the voice? Well, because God said here, knowing the heart of man, because if you saw what I looked like, then you would do something I don't want you to do. You would take the image in your mind and you would try to duplicate it. You try to describe what I look like to others. And they too would take what you described and they would try to recreate that as well. Recreate an image and they'd begin to bow down to that image, worship it, pray to it as if it was me. And you see, God created man to worship, didn't he? But God is a jealous God. He wants us to worship him and him alone. And he understands mankind, doesn't he? he? He fashioned us. He knows our frame. He knows our weaknesses. He knows the difficulties. He knows our tendencies, the tendency to worship just about anything. And man, but anything that man could fashion or even imagine in his mind would be inaccurate and completely inadequate. Why? Because those things that man likens to God, what's going to happen? They're going to fail, right? They're going to die. They'll dry up. They'll let you down because they have no life or power. So God has given a prohibition against worshiping God in a false way, looking to the heavens, the earth, and into the sea, imagining what God must look like as you look to the sky, as, as you look around the creation, as you look into the sea, creating in your mind an image of what you think God must be like. You see, that's worshiping God in a false way, isn't it? That's idol worship. And remember when Moses came down from the mountain. He had just met with God up on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. And God gave him the Ten Commandments. And when he came down, what did the people at the base of the mountain say? As they gathered around this thing, this golden calf, what did they say? They said, this is the God that brought us out of the land of Egypt. Now, wait a minute. A fashioned golden calf led them out of the land of Egypt? Did they see this thing part the waters? Did they see this thing close the waters over the Egyptian armies? No way. 
But they knew God delivered them and said, well, he must look like this. The calf is a representation of God, and they began to worship it. And God is saying to his people, anything that you imagine, anything that you draw, anything you draw from observation is going to be inadequate. And we could ask, if we can't make these images from what we see in creation, how, how can we understand what God looks like? Well, Colossians 1.15 tells us this, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And remember when, when Jesus addressed Philip in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 9, that so Jesus saith unto him, unto Philip, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? You see, if you want to know what God's like, if you want to know what God looks like, Jesus said, look to me. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. And in John 1, verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that, of course, speaks of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God didn't leave it to our imagination so that we would look to inadequate models in creation. He said, I will become one of you through my son Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. And if you want to know who I am and what I'm like, my son is the image of me. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 Speaking of Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory in the express image of his person. You see, that's what Christianity is all about. It's about worshiping God as seen in the person of Jesus Christ. And as we study the scriptures, as we examine the gospels, yes, we, we see Jesus. And if we see Jesus, he said, you've seen the Father. What more do we need? We don't see his face. But you know what, how glorious this is that one day, one day we will see him face to face when we get to heaven. First John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Isn't that exciting? Yeah. We're going to see him face to face. If we receive the new birth, we got a front row seat looking at Jesus face to face. Well, through the Gospels, we begin to understand God's heart, don't we? He, we understand his nature. We begin to understand his character, his personality, his love, his attributes, his purpose, and his motives. We don't look at some model. We look to Jesus, the only begotten Son of God. But sadly for some... You know, many have become human billboards. We've lost the sense of reality that we're made in the express image and likeness of God. That's, that's how God created us. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27 says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. But it's interesting to me that, you know, we, we tend, God warned the people against worshiping things, things in the heaven, things in the sea, and 
here in Genesis, right at the very beginning, he said, we've made man in our image and after our likeness to have dominion over those things, not to worship them. But we've departed, haven't we? And you know, we as, as Christians, we, we can apply pressure to ourselves too. Sometimes we think, well, as a Christian, I've got, I've got an image to uphold. And we can have a tendency to paint a picture of ourselves to the world that we don't have any problems. You know, you, I have to say, every time we gather together, I see this. And I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. I mean, this is just the way it is. How you doing, brother? You might be having the most miserable week of the year. <laughs> oh, yeah, praise the Lord. Everything is good. When it's not, is it? Why? Well, we've got a certain image that we want to uphold. How have we gotten there? Well, it's the same spirit that's affected mankind for thousands of years. And it's the spirit that caused us to kind of like to elevate ourselves and not humble ourselves and be vulnerable. And I'm more guilty than any of you, I'm sure. You're the pastor. You can't have any problems. Right, Ange? Imagine, or excuse me, image is what drives advertising agencies. And the plan is, well, how can I capture somebody's ego into wearing, driving, drinking, or using this particular product? How can I work something in their heart that makes them think they need this to uphold a certain image? That's how they make their money. And many people take the bait. Well, what can we do about that? Well, let me give you a, a little story here. Several years ago, Jack and I took our kids fishing at North Ponds Park in Webster. We just used a hook and a worm, you know, nothing fancy. Put the worm on the hook. The hook, of course, is hidden, and we'd cast the, the line out, and invariably a, a fish would go after the bait, and occasionally a small fish would go after it and get hooked. I mean, I'm talking fish about this big, tiny things. But I remember as we were standing there throwing our lines out, I decided, well, I'm going to walk down here a little bit. And you probably remember this story, Jack. And I looked down into the water. It was shallow, where was it? But about four feet from shore was a largemouth bass. But it was a large, largemouth bass. It was. Honestly, it was about this big. About, about, how, how? <laughs> no, honestly, it was about, about this big. So what I did was I, I took my fishing pole with the, the worm on it, and this fish was in the weeds a little bit, and I, I set this, this, this worm down about an inch in front of this big bass, thinking, well, I got him now. So I called Jackie over, look at this thing. We looked, we just waited a minute, thought it'd be, this is going to be a piece of cake to catch this fish, and you know what the fish did? Turned around and went away. I made a comment to Jackie, this fish must be well fed. <laughs> well, 
when I think about that wonderful looking bass, I realize there's a lesson in it. This, this fish was satisfied because it was well fed. This bait, this, this worm didn't entice him at all, but rather turned away. And I think we can learn something from this bass. And that is, are we going to take the bait of the world to fashion our image? What image do we want to present? Is it the image that the world wants, wants to see in us? But you know what? Image promises everything but delivers nothing. And this, this bass was, was fed up, so full, so satisfied, he just swam away. So the question I have, the question that entered in my mind was, how satisfied am I? Am I so satisfied, so satisfied spiritually that the only identification that I have is with the one who made me in his image and likeness, and of course, that's Jesus. And if I'm not so satisfied, what do I do about it? Well, the book of Romans chapter 12 tells us this in verses 1 and 2. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now listen to this. And be not conformed to this world. That's what the world wants, right? Jesus said, no. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So this, this transforming, this transformation that God wants to do in my life and in our lives, I, I think it boils down to something like this. Is, am I spending my time reading the Word of God, immersing myself in the Word of God, that I become so full in the knowledge of God, and that bait is nothing more than a nuisance, the bait of the world? Or am I spiritually lean so that my identity and my image is wrapped up into fitting in? We're not called to be like the world. We're called out from the world, which means I now live for Jesus. We are called to be separate from the world. Not to separate ourselves from people, but the ways of the world. This is what I'm talking about. 2 Corinthians 6.17 says, Wherefore, come out of, from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. That's where God wants us. And in Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul the Apostle said, I am crucified with Christ. In other words, put to death in Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And the best way for us is to realize our identity, our identity, our true identity is in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29 says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. For what? Here it is. To be conformed to the image of his Son. This is incredible. You know, many people confuse this word predestinate with, well, some are destined to heaven, some destined to hell. No, this is predestination right here. Predestined to be conformed into the image of God's Son. That's his plan for you, his plan for me, 
to be conformed into the image of Jesus. And when we understand this, it's so freeing. Because we don't have to pretend, we don't have to try to be like somebody else. You know, I don't have to go to the hair club for men. <laughs> I don't need biceps to, as big as a boulder. I'm satisfied by one pack ab, you know? <laughs> I'm made in the image and likeness of God. And you and I, the scriptures tell us that, and this should be so satisfying to you, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God says that about you. The world may not, but we need to get to the place where I don't care what the world says. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am made in the image and likeness of God. And yet there are millions and millions of pressured Americans who fall into the pressure of the world. We need to learn from that bass, don't we? The bait is just bait with a trap set to hook you. The program of Jesus for us is to be conformed to him. And the world fights against God and his program for you. But your identity and my identity must be in Jesus Christ. And may God give us the wisdom to help us see the better way. Verse 24 in Deuteronomy chapter 4 says, For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. God says, I'm a jealous God. Not jealous of your things. Not jealous of you, but he's jealous for you. In other words, he wants you. And when our attention drifts from him and who he is and who he has made us to be, God has a sense of jealousy. I want him back. Isn't that wonderful? God wants us back. So our life is really about Jesus, isn't it? So that section we just looked at, that's the warning. And I want to look at this next section here, which is a promise. But it's also the fulfillment of what God had said if his children follow after false idols, graven images, the things we just talked about. But it's also a prophetic passage, and this is so beautiful, prophetic concerning the future of Israel. And here's what it says in verse 25. And this is important for us today, the future of Israel. It says, when thou shalt beget children and children's children, and you shall remain long in the land, he's talking about the promised land, and shall corrupt yourselves and make a graven image or the likeness of anything, and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God to provoke him to anger. You see, Moses shared what will happen when they go into the promised land. They have children, they have grandchildren, and they've been there a long time. Something happens. They've been there a long time. 
something set in. Complacency set in. Complacency. They weren't seeking the Lord. What does he say here? You shall corrupt yourselves. He didn't say somebody's going to corrupt you. No, we corrupt ourselves, don't we? we? God has given us a free will. As he gave his people a free will, he said, you corrupted yourselves and made graven images and you began to worship them. And I believe, you know, this is a warning for us too. We can become complacent spiritually. You know, we can develop a ho-hum attitude toward the scriptures. Or our devotion to God can be reflected in our prayer life. It can be reflected in our fellowship life. Our reading of the Bible life faces in this book. This book. It can happen to us. And God gives the warning of what will happen. He says, you will corrupt yourselves. And he said, you'll do it by making graven images in the likeness of just about anything. And when you do that, he says, you're going to provoke me to anger. Well, what does this speak of? Well, it speaks of this. Our attention will go elsewhere to other things or we'll establish in our minds other means of worship and other gods to worship. And God said through Moses, this will happen after you've been in the promised land for a while. And God says, you're going to force me to deal with you as, as a people. And he was forced to deal with them as a people because they began to take upon themselves the idolatrous practices of the land, materialism, they turned away from God. Let's look at verses 26 and 27. He said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you shall soon utterly perish from off the land where until you go over Jordan to possess it. You shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed, and the Lord shall scatter you among the nations, and you shall be left few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall lead you. God says, if you do these things, then you're forcing me to do what I'm going to say I'm going to do. And God did. He scattered them out of the, out of the nation. He scattered them out of the land. In 586 B.C., God allowed the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, to come from the north and into Jerusalem. He destroyed the city walls, leveled Solomon's temple, and he took the people captive. Turn to 2 Chronicles with me for a minute. We've got a few verses I want to take a look at. 2 Chronicles 36. And read verses 17 through 21. It says, therefore, he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion upon young man or maiden, old man, or him that stooped for age, he gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon." And they burnt the house of God and brake down the wall of Jerusalem and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them he carried that excuse me, and them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. And here's why to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. 
For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years. So the Jewish people were carried into Babylon, just like verse 27 of Deuteronomy 4 tells us. They were held in captivity for 70 years. After the 70 years, the Spirit of God began to stir in the hearts of the Jews. Jeremiah 25, verse 12 says, And it shall come to pass when 70 years... This is so beautiful. God nails this with accuracy, doesn't he? He always does. And it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it a perpetual make it perpetual desolations. So what God did, he formed a remnant that would return to Jerusalem after 70 years to rebuild the city. And we're not going to get into the details of that tonight, but it's recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They were back in the promised land. But then as time passed, they would turn from God again. When God sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to be their Messiah, and, and the people turned against him and said, we will have no king but Caesar. And within 40 years of their rejection of Jesus, in the year 70 A.D., the Romans under Titus destroyed Jerusalem again. And almost a million Jews were killed. The temple once again desecrated. And from there, persecution intensified. The people were driven out and scattered. They no longer had a land that they could call their own. Just like prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that we just read. The Jewish survivors were scattered all around the world, a people it would seem without a home. It's incredible to think, a people without a home all over the world. Then something began to stir. Something began to take place miraculously. And history tells us that no nation or any national group has survived more than three generations without a homeland. And what happened when a people have no homeland, they lose their cultural identity, don't they? They don't even know who they are anymore. And the people become assimilated to the culture of their surrounding people. They become just like the people they're among. But the Jewish people, unlike any other person or any other people in the history of mankind, retained their identity and their heritage even though they were scattered. For almost 2,000 years, they were scattered. That's 50 generations. And in the late 1900s, the Jewish people began to return to the Middle East and purchase the land that they once possessed. And the Arab people who occupied it, they gladly sold the land. It was a desert wasteland. It seemed to have no value to anyone. But to the Jewish people, it was the land that God had promised them. And they were coming back. Mark Twain wrote of what he saw when he visited the land in 1867 in this excerpt from Innocence Abroad. He wrote this, a desolate country whose soil is rich enough but is given over wholly to weeds, a silent, mournful expanse, a desolation. We never saw a human being on the whole route, hardly a tree or shrub anywhere. Even the olive and the cactus trees, those fast friends of worthless soil had almost deserted the country. Even olive trees and cactus plants didn't want to live there. That's what he saw. And the Arab inhabitants said, we're selling it to you. So what happened? When the Jewish people came back, they, they drained the swamps. 
God gave them incredible thinking abilities and they began to establish and build irrigation systems and systematically rebuild the land. And today, Israel's an agricultural marvel. When we were there in 2017, I mean, in the spring is beautiful, flowers everywhere. Date palm trees, row after row after row, acre after acre after square mile, date palm trees everywhere, beautiful. Yes, there's still some desert areas, but God gave them the, the ability to capture water and to use it. Deuteronomy 4, verse 7, said the people would be scattered and shall be few in number, which they were. Israel today is the chief exporter of fresh flowers. Bigger than anybody in the world. I mean, this is incredible stuff. And the attention of the world focused on the Jewish people in the area they inhabited in World War II where six million Jews were murdered. The world's focus was there. But then on May 14, 1948, the United Nations voted to give Israel a homeland and became a nation once again almost 2,000 years later. From one day to the next, this nation came back to life. Isaiah 66, verse 8 says, Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in, a, in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. And this is exactly what happened to Israel. The only time in human history that a nation was brought back to life. And since then, the nation of Israel has been under continual attack. And what are we seeing today? The nation of Israel is under attack once again. In Matthew 24, Jesus spoke of the end times. In this passage, this, this chapter called the Olivet Discourse, verse 32, Jesus said, Learn the parable of the fig tree. Every time the fig tree is mentioned in the Bible, it refers to it's a type of the nation of Israel. Matthew 24, verses 32 through 34, Jesus said, Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when you shall see these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Again, Jesus said, learn the lesson of the fig tree. You see, in the winter, the fig tree appears to be dead. It's bare. There's no leaves on it. I remember growing up as a kid, my, my grandparents, my mom's parents had a house in the city. And my grandfather, he, he liked to tinker in the yard. He had rose bushes and all kinds of things. But he also planted a couple of fig trees. And I remember in the fall, late fall, he would take these trees, he'd wrap them in burlap, and he would bend them over and bury that in the ground. Gramps, what are you doing? Just don't worry. Wait till spring. I'm going to uncover this and leaves are going to come out. And we're going to have figs. And you know what? He was right. Jesus said, when spring comes and leaves come back, the trees come back to life. When you see this happening, when you see Israel come back to life, A.D. 70, May 13th, Israel was dead, sprung back to life on May 14th, 1948, in a day. Jesus said, when you see this take place, know that my coming is near. 
That was 1948. I say it's nearer today than it was then, don't you? And we, as we see things stirring up once again in the Middle East, I know that Jesus is coming back soon. Now, there's other signs too. Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24, but we're not going to get into those today. But the prophet Zechariah, in chapter 12, verse 3, he said this, In that day I will make Jerusalem a burden stone for all people. Where are all the eyes focused today? Israel. Israel. And soon to be on Jerusalem. And all that burden themselves with it shall cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth shall be gathered against it. You see, Israel's the apple of God's eye. And God said, I will bless those that bless thee and curse those that curse thee. Our nation needs to stand with the nation of Israel. Pray that we always will. Not in word only, in deed. I mean, truly stand with Israel. Zechariah 12, 9. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all, all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Those are strong words. Well, what's this telling us? Well, first off, we're in the last days. And because we are in the last days, we need to be ready. We need to be prepared. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober or serious, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying, Jesus is coming back soon. And I believe with all my heart that the rapture of the church is on the horizon. So we need to be ready. You know, as, as it said at the very beginning today, in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 4, take heed, take good heed. And the second thing I think we need to be reminded of is God is faithful. God is faithful. Let's look at verse 29 of Deuteronomy 4. It says, but if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God. Remember what he said. If you worship these graven images, if you take and follow after the practices of the people of the land, then I'm going to judge you. And I'm going to scatter you, which he did. But, verse 29, if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him, if thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Israel would rise from the deepest misery if they returned to the Lord, just like the prodigal son in Luke 15, welcomed with open arms. Verses 30 and 31. When thou art in tribulation, and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days, if thou turn to the Lord thy God, and shalt be obedient unto his voice, for the Lord thy God is a merciful God, he will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he swear unto them. That's a prescription that God gives us for those undergoing difficulty, tribulation, or hardship, pain, and trials. Maybe that describes something in your life tonight. And notice in verse 30, he says, when you are in tribulation... In other words, it's not really an option. We're, we're going to experience tribula tribulation. Jesus said, in this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. 
I'm grateful for that verse, aren't you? But then we find a key word. It's the word if. God provides a constant and standing invitation for people like us to come to him. If, he says, if you turn to the Lord your God, means to seek God with a heart to obey him. Many people would claim to seek God but refuse to obey him. And the key to seeking is to follow and to obey. 1 Chronicles 28, verses 9 and 10 says, And thou, Solomon, my son, know that thou the, the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee. But if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. Take heed. There it is again. Take heed now. The Lord hath chosen thee to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Israel could know that the Lord was God because of all the amazing things God had done in the life of their nation. And he did. He's done marvelous things, incredible things. But you know, it's really no different than us too. When we consider ourselves, our own lives, how God has touched our lives, how God has saved us, how God has kept us, how God has given to us every single morning new and tender mercies, how his compassions never fail, how we've experienced the power to free us from sin, how God gives us hope when we're discouraged. He, not only that, he heals us physically, he heals our bodies, he heals our bitter and broken hearts, he answers our prayers, and he helps us overcome the most difficult obstacles. obstacles. And when we consider these things, that, you know, and there's many, many more, when we consider what God has done in our life, we can know that he is God. The Lord himself is God in heaven, above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Israel heard God's audible voice from heaven. They saw his holy fire and benefited from his divine choice that they would be his people. They could know this because God had done all this for him. Verse 40 says, You shall therefore keep his statutes and his commandments. In light of all who God is, all he has done, obedience to his commands, they make perfect sense, don't they? When we consider, you know, maybe we're, we, we take a moment, we're considering stepping away from truth or doing something we ought not to do. You know, I think the Bible's reminding us here, well, if we consider that all that God has done for us, why would we make those kind of decisions to step away? Obedience makes sense. It's what should be done. It's right. Otherwise, it's foolish to obey such a God of love and power. In Isaiah 1, verse 18, we'll close with this verse. God gives us the invitation. He says, come now. Come now. And he said, let us reason together. In other words, let's, let's put our heads together and think about what I've done for you. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. There's not much whiter than pure snow, is there? This verse always makes me think. I, I've shared this here before. A few years ago, on a Sunday morning, we had a blanket of snow, a, a good, good heavy snow, but the sun was out. And I looked out from my office upstairs over there and looked out into the fields of Bishop Kearney. 
And it was just a blanket of purity. A blanket of sparkling white snow. And this verse came to mind. Though your sin be as scarlet, it shall be as white as snow. And though it be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. When he speaks of wool, he's talking about white. And that's the purifying power that Jesus has that he bought for us on the cross. Cleansed me from all of my sin. What more do I need? And yet God gives me so much more. Where would I be without Jesus? Where would we be without him? I can tell you one thing. I wouldn't be here right now. And I wouldn't have any hope. And there's a lot of folks in this world that don't have any kind of eternal hope. They think they do. They're deceived into thinking that it's all right here, right now. This is as good as it gets. But no. This is not the end. God has provided for us a sure foundation, a sure destination through his son, and I am so grateful. Father, we're so thankful for the scriptures. You gave a warning to your people. You followed through in your warning as they disobeyed you, and yet, and yet you gave them a promise, a warning with a promise. And we see evidence of, of your goodness. We see evidence of of your truth right before our eyes as we look across the ocean into the nation of Israel, a people in a land that you gave them. And they're going through difficult times. God, be with them, please. And help us to just walk the kind of walk that you would have us, Lord, not to be conformed to this world, the world just dangles bait in front of us constantly, yet you tell us that we are created in your image and your likeness. And help us live with that knowledge, please, that we are fearfully, wonderfully, beautifully made by our God. Hand-picked, hand-fashioned, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.